The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food health, and agriculture, and I want to welcome you to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Steve Smith. I met Mr. Smith at a U.S. Farmers and Ranchers panel in Chicago. We both had the pleasure, I guess you could say, of serving on the panel and representing our different perspectives on agriculture. But Mr. Smith is Director of Agriculture for Red Gold of Indiana, which is the world's largest privately held canned tomato processor. Steve describes himself as an agriculturalist, born and raised on a Midwestern family farm that has continued for more than 100 years. He is also the chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition. Mr. Smith, welcome. It's good to be with you again, Melinda. When we were having dinner prior to our panel experience, you had mentioned conversationally, quite casually, that the tomatoes we were eating were likely red gold tomatoes. And I wonder if you could just let our listeners know a little bit about the quantity of tomatoes that red gold produces. Yes, it's really pretty fascinating. As I walk through our factories, I wonder who all the people are that could eat this many cans of tomatoes. And I've been here for 24 years, and it still strikes me with the volume that we are able to do and still have the attention to detail. But we do approximately about a quarter of all the canned tomatoes in the U.S., and so that's actually a pretty good volume. And when it comes to things like ketchup and tomato sauce, things like that, that uh, ketchup were like about 90% of the non-national branded ketchup. So the company has grown and been very successful in marketing to all regions of the country and several foreign countries, and we're quite proud of where we've ended up. Mm -hmm. Now, do you contract with smaller farmers to produce the tomatoes, or how does this work? Who is working in the fields? All of our tomatoes are produced uh, under contract by family farms here in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. And uh, our growers number about 52 growers. And through those 52 growers, they'll supply us each year with about 20,000 semis loaded of processing tomatoes. So it's a pretty good quantity. Wow, I'll say. When I was visiting the website to prepare for our interview, I was really quite impressed by your methodology in terms of you're really picking those tomatoes when they're ripe. You're not picking them green. You're picking them ripe, and you're processing them very shortly thereafter. Did I read that correctly? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's one of the claims to fame of why canned tomatoes are very popular and nutritious, both because when they hit the can, they've been off the vine you know, less than normally less than 12 hours, and they're already red and fully ripe like you'd pick right out of your backyard garden. So mm-hmm. uh, we think that we're the closest thing you can get to actually eating a summertime tomato out of your backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that you may or may not be familiar with, but I'm curious about the packaging of tomatoes. 
I know that there's been some concern lately regarding the lining of tomato cans, and I'm sure you've seen the press releases about this. Is Red Gold looking to change the can linings at all? Are you moving away from BPA? I know there's been some problems, too, in looking at alternatives because they may or may not be less or more toxic. Sure. The whole canned food industry has taken on this challenge, and it's you know it involves everything, not just canned food, but anything in plastic and, and things like that, too. So it's a real issue that the whole industry is looking at. The canned suppliers are experimenting every day with different types of linings. But I think the track record of, of safe and, and proven health and safety of, of canned foods has shown themselves over the years. And, you know, we, we would like to think that we're providing our consumers with a very, very safe product. Now, uh, let me ask you one more question just about the product itself. Do you supply tomatoes to any of the jars of tomato sauce products? Not any of the uh, glass jar sauces, but we do uh, uh, several items of spaghetti sauce in, in glass jars, but not just regular tomato sauce, but we are doing spaghetti sauce in glass and as well as canned, and uh, that's the extent of the glass. Most of all of our products are canned, and a large part of our products are in food service type containers. It uh, mm-hmm. might even be the bag-in-a-box type things for restaurants, things like that. Of course, a lot of ketchup goes into plastic bottles as well as uh, tomato juice goes into plastic bottles. And glass. And glass. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important for all of us to know where our food comes from. And I'm always so delighted to know that there are still producers in the United States making food that we consume here in the United States. I always get a little concerned when I hear about less food being produced in the U.S. and more of it being imported because I think that reflects upon our national security. So thank you, Red Gold, and thank you, Mr. Smith, for continuing those traditions and keeping people employed and farmers employed. Well, we're glad to do that. Our family ownership is just exactly that. It's not just a group of people that invest in the company. They are out here on a daily basis getting their hands dirty and having wrenches in their back pocket and overseeing everything that goes on. So it truly is a family operation, and their name is synonymous with really quality products. Mm -hmm. Well, now, the reason why you were selected to be on the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance panel had to do less probably with your role as Director of Agriculture for Red Gold and more to do with your role as Chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you formed Absolutely. It's a, it's a very critical issue that we foresaw coming about five years ago is when it first came to my attention of some things that were happening that were kind of indirectly going to affect everybody in the specialty crop production system in the Midwest. And that was going to be the introduction of a new kind of GMO crop in this case, particularly soybeans, even though it will eventually be probably several crops, uh, uh, even cotton. But it was going to be uh, crops that were going to be resistant to a class of herbicides called synthetic auxins. Two of the more familiar names among those would be 2,4-D and dicamba. And 
those products over the history of them have had a issue with off-target movement, uh, both by direct drift, but also by a process called volatilization. And that's where when a, a farmer applicator would apply the product to their field, and just as you would see fumes coming off if you spilled gasoline, and that's an exaggeration of it, but as you see fumes come off of that, it's the same way with these products. They are known to volatize under certain atmospheric conditions, and then that volatility in the gaseous form can move one, two miles, or even farther, in some cases, down valleys, and it can move for several days after application. So even though the farmer was taking great care to do the right thing in spring when winds were not directly drifting onto a neighbor's crop. Later on, this stuff could pick up and move and still cause harm, and we might not even have any idea of where the problem came from. So as we looked at that potential to happen, we said this is just not good for our industry and started talking with universities, started talking with uh, other processors to get their take and start talking with grower groups like a lot of the state grower associations like Indiana Vegetable Growers and Pennsylvania Vegetable Growers, groups like that. And universally, people said, really? They're going to do that? Uh, You know, those products have been known for years not to be very good about staying where they're put. And uh, it, it just, the movement sort of just grew and uh, we come to the realization as time was getting closer, we had to get more formal and uh, the group was started uh, through the uh, efforts of a lot of people to make this thing work. And I, I was glad to take up the mantle as chairman and, and help lead the effort. Well, it's not just the volatization then, it's also this drift that you talk about. And the crops that are affected, let's talk about the broad number of crops that really stand to be damaged from this drift and from the volatization. So you've got tomatoes, of course. You've also got grapes, right? What else? Generally, every food crop except for sweet corn. Sweet corn is in the grass family that these products, um, it, it has minor effects on it, but it does not have major effects on it. So generally, every other food crop, pumpkins, uh, green beans, uh, like you mentioned, grapes, uh, almost everything that uh, you eat is susceptible to these types of of, uh, products. And the one thing that many more of your listeners might be interested in is the risk to rural homeowners and gardeners and landscapers. Uh, These products... Generally, in the Midwest, what used to be an 80-acre farm is now a 70-acre farm with 10 acres of houses uh, mixed in among it. And uh, people have backyard gardens, and they have their prized roses and other landscape plants and ornamentals that uh, is also affected by this. And so there's a, a whole group of people that are getting ready to be affected, and they have no idea what's coming towards them. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces that I pulled up in preparation for our discussion was a fact sheet from Purdue based there in Indiana. And 
taken from this fact sheet, it says that many groups and individuals, including weed scientists and agronomists, crop growers, specialty crop growers, are concerned about 2,4-D and dicamba-resistant crops. They say such crops are unnecessary, will make farmers more dependent on the intellectual property held by large corporations, will injure non-target crops, such as you described, and will accelerate the evolution of herbicide resistance in weeds. And then the next paragraph says, Others argue that, well, 2,4-D and dicamba have been used on millions of acres since the 1960s and has not resulted in widespread damage, so using them on tolerant crops should not concern growers of high-value horticulture crops. So on the one hand, you've got a group of people who say, yeah, we're concerned, and I should tell you that I am one of them for different reasons, which I'll voice here in a moment. And then you've got another group that says, no, no, we've been using these products for years and there's nothing to worry about. How do you address that kind of situation where you've got the strong pro and the strong con? You know, once you start to explain people why there's little bits of truth in that second paragraph you read, the uh, overriding truth is a little bit different. And the whole story is not being told in that paragraph particularly the part that these have been used for years without problems. These have been used for years with problems. And uh, one reason that they are just very rarely used in the general crop cycle right now is that farmers have uh, suffered damaging instances with their neighbors for years and have just quit using them. They are used sometimes in pasture. And, And so as you look at the USDA data, on the use of these products, particularly dicamba. Uh, Dicamba is not even in the top 25 chemistries, according to USDA data from 2007, but yet it was the fifth most reported off-target problem that was investigated. That type of ratio indicates what the problem is. But the bigger issue of why this is even becoming more important is the timing of application. Once this new um, set of um, GMO plants gets uh, approved, the timing of application will take place in late May through most of June when regular uh, crops like tomatoes and gardens and landscapes are all leafed out. Prior to that, the predominant use of all these products was for what we call burn down early in the season uh, of killing things before these other crops were even planted. So in, in the case of tomatoes, We've suffered a lot of drift damage on tomatoes by the application of Roundup already over the last few years. And and so we understand how drastic this drift situation is. And when you throw in the new mixes and the volatilization potential, uh, we see real problems coming down the road that that article in the second paragraph really doesn't adequately describe. And kind of just like pulling the lining over everybody's eyes. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Mr. Steve Smith. He is the Director of Agriculture for Red Gold of Indiana, which is the world's largest privately held canned tomato processor. He is also Chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition, and we are talking about the risky and troublesome situation that we are in now looking at the approval of 2,4-D and dicamba-tolerant crops. And I guess, you know, we should mention, we should let our listeners know, you know, how did we get here, right? We got here because of the genetically modified Roundup-resistant crops, which came first of the genetically modified crops. 
And what happens is what happens to all weeds and bacteria and pests is they develop resistance so that they can survive and outlive us, actually. And so what happened was we developed Roundup-resistant weeds, and now the industry needs a stronger herbicide application to take care of those resistant weeds and then some. Would you say I've described that correctly? What would you add? Oh, I think you, you're essentially correct in that. The uh, uh, resistance, though, was enhanced uh, by some practices of, uh, the, of only using Roundup instead of having a good widespread program of, of herbicide use that would have uh, absolutely prevented the problem from happening like we have. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a lot of fingers to be pointed about how we've got to where we are but the truth is we are now where we are, and uh, now we've got to face what the what the problems are. Mm-hmm. I'm sure one of the reasons why I was selected to be on the panel with you in Chicago and with the others was because of my background is public health and diet nutrition. And I just did a Google search on Dicamba and 2,4-D, and I... One of my favorite publications, and I want our listeners to be familiar with this, is called Environmental Health Perspectives, and it's published by the National Institutes of Health. And there was a study that was published in 2003, if you can believe it, and it had to do with birth malformations and other adverse perinatal outcomes in four U.S. wheat-producing states. And the reason why we saw higher rates of birth malformations was the fact that more than 85% of the acreage in Minnesota, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota that was producing spring and durum wheat was treated with 2,4-D and other herbicides in that class. So it's not only the risk of losing crops to drift, it's also with the increased application of this herbicide we can anticipate, or we certainly should anticipate, seeing more birth defects also related to its use. The Save Our Crops Coalition has uh, tried to very narrowly uh, keep our focus on, on the off-target movement uh, because from a, a research standpoint, uh, you know, we're all people that understand off-target movement and things like that, and that, that's what we wanted to always address, and we've really never gotten into of the individual safety aspects of the chemicals or of GMOs. We just know that there are good people on each side of those arguments that uh, can make very compelling cases. But we've never found anybody that wanted to disagree with the fact that wherever it is sprayed, it should stay where it's at. And that's that's the reason that we have focused mainly on the issue of off-target movement. Um, what you say, I'm sure that there's a very valid research project to back that up. We've just never done a lot of um, uh, research into the actual um, chemistry of these items. Mm-hmm. There have been uh, lots of studies on agricultural health. You know, why are farmers, for example, more likely to have certain kinds of cancers? And there's a robust body of literature looking at the kinds of herbicides and pesticides that they're exposed to and public health. So it's all connected, and I love the idea of of our groups, public health, farmers, coming together and looking at a a broader picture to see really what do we have to lose, not the least of which is our our healthful food supply, and then, of course, our, our own health and farmers' health. So let me ask you something about drift. Now, let's say a farmer could be a a conventional farmer who's using 
herbicides and pesticides of some nature. Could be an organic farmer who chooses not to use some of these products. But what happens and who is responsible when that farmer experiences drift and loses a crop? What is their next step? The only next step is to go to the applicator that made the application and uh, try to achieve some sort of settlement with that. And uh, that is a very tenuous thing. Uh, We have found in the drift cases that have affected our tomatoes in the past that about half the time the the applicator that does it steps up and says, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I just didn't realize how strong the wind was blowing. Look, here's my insurance number, call them, and we'll make sure we get you taken care of. And about the other half of the time, the growers um, take a little bit different approach. It's what I call the Bart Simpson approach. Uh, didn't do it. Didn't do it. And um, at that point in time, it, it's a really, really uh, sad situation. It really affects rural acrimony among neighbors when you have to actually take litigation against people to try to get uh, this problem and, and the economic loss uh, solved. And, and the numbers are staggering. Um, we have had over $1.3 million worth of uh, tomato damage in the last five years. And in every case, we've proven the situation that it actually happened. Um, but in every case, we do not always collect enough to even cover attorney's fees under litigation. So it's it's really a serious, serious situation for the innocent victim. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I had no idea. And what a shame that there isn't any compensation or rightly held fault on the person who causes the damage. And I love the way you brought up the issue of rural acrimony because, you know, I, I have many friends who are farmers in communities that are very sparsely populated. And the relationships that are formed with neighbors, among neighbors, is critical. I mean, these are the people that go to church together. They they go to the same social functions. Many of them are related. And it destroys rural communities, doesn't it? Absolutely does. And it's one of the, the saddest parts of of all of this is what it does to within the community, uh, between people that have farmed side by side for years and years. And uh, it's really been a sad situation. It's it's one of the driving things behind our group. We want to prevent that from happening before it does. And so that's one reason we've been very aggressive in working to try to prevent that. Uh, And and we've had success. We were able to achieve an agreement with Dow AgriSciences to make changes in their label and applicator rules that will go a long, long ways towards reducing these things that's happened. We've also been uh, one of the founding people of a program called Driftwatch, where uh, applicators can check a website to see where sensitive crops are located to make sure that they're uh, taking care of and doing the right thing in their applications. And uh, also has field signs. But it's all part of this thought process. Let's prevent the issues before they arise. And uh, we like to think that we've led that effort. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hope that these kinds of crops would not be approved. And one of your best successes of late, I think, has been the ability to hold off the approval of these resistant plants because now you have asked for 
basically an assessment, an environmental impact statement prior to approval, and we think now that this will hold off the approval of these crops at least to 2015. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. We think what we made was a very reasonable argument to USDA that, uh, yes, while you guys have uh, investigated these products for years for the regular things that you investigated all herbicides and, and chemistries for, nobody has looked at the change in application pattern of what that would do to a local environment. In other words, there has never been a 100 million acres of dicamba floating around the Midwest under uh, any circumstances since these have been labeled. If marketing plans would go as, as people think they would, uh, there could be a hundred million acres of dicamp applications. Now, not under every circumstance do they pick up and move. Do they get direct, direct drifted onto neighbors? But with that kind of concentration, what's going to happen to the habitats of pollinators and fence rows? What's going to happen to rural homeowners? People are just not thinking of the extent of what some of this could mean. And that's the reason that I think that the USDA looked at what we said and uh, believed our argument and came across that they did need to do the study. One would think that these studies would be done prior to the approval of any of these products, and I gather that's not the case. They only do it uh, if someone has brought to the attention that under the NEPA Act that there could be environmental impacts beyond the tradition that that uh, is looked at by the approval in these products. And so when an organization like ours that is made up of just regular business people and regular farmers and uh, not activists of any sort went to the USDA and said, you need to look at this, they were willing to uh, step up to the plate and listen because if people like us are saying this, there may be something that they should take a look at. And they did, and and we were just thrilled to get that kind of an outcome. Yeah, well, I want to thank you for actually being an activist and taking steps to change the course of history because, you know, I think everybody has different interpretations of the vocabulary, but I think taking an active role, maybe that's how I would define being an activist, but taking an active role to protect the U.S. food supply, to protect the American farmer, to protect the American consumer, the public health, and the food supply of all concerned is absolutely a moral act. And I I really want to thank you, Mr. Smith, for your positive actions in this area. Well, we appreciate that. I just knew that I could not look at myself if three years down the road we were forced to go out of production because of of this eliminating our, our crop every year. And I just knew we had to do whatever we could to try to make sure that the safety of everybody's food supply is, was primary in the focus. That's right. And how our economy is really hinged on these environmental and public health effects as well. Okay, now we want to make sure that we leave our listeners with a place to learn more about what you're doing and if they'd like to get involved. Would you recommend the SaveOurCrops.org website then? Absolutely. It's uh, just saveourcrops.org, 
And uh, we really need to reach out to the home gardening community and, and landscapers. We have good ties with production ag, but there's a whole group of people that's going to be affected, maybe even more than us, mm-hmm. uh, that we would really like to reach out and get active in this uh, in this situation. Well, I will make sure to have the Save Our Crafts website linked to our interview. And in closing, I want to thank you very much for being my guest and for sharing your insights as an agriculturalist, as someone who's working in the food industry, and who's somebody who has really taken an active role in helping to protect our public health and the American food supply. I also want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you again, Mr. Smith, for being my guest. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Melinda. Melinda.